today on Against the Grain, part one of a two-show retrospective marking Against the Grain's 20th anniversary. I'm CS. I'll present portions of some of my favorite interviews over the past two decades coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. On March 3rd, 2023, Against the Grain turned 20. It was hard to celebrate on air. March 3rd was a Friday, and then a week of fundraising kept us from marking the occasion. But we are making up for that in the form of a two-part special. Today's program constitutes part one. It features excerpts from some of my favorite interviews. What I count as favorites are conversations with thinkers who've introduced new vistas or summed things up in an especially compelling way. Later in the hour, you'll hear from Laura Kipnis about long-term domestic coupledom, from Theodore Brown about the history of socialist organizing, from the writer Louise Erdrich about seeking answers to life's big questions, and from Juliet Hooker about what she calls democratic loss and African-American activism. We begin with David Hawkes, professor of English at Arizona State University and the author of Ideology and Idols of the Marketplace, among other books. In this clip from a 2012 interview, David Hawkes compares the belief in Western societies and symbols like money with beliefs in magic in indigenous societies. When David says usury, he means the practice of lending money with interest. Now, the point of similarity between magic and capitalism is the power that both of them give to symbols. In magic, the witch or the magician tries to use representations incantations, symbols, icons, fetishes, in order to alter the objective condition of things in the real world. Right? That's essentially what magic is, the attempt to use representation to achieve objective effects. And that is also what capitalism does. It takes a medium of representation, money, and it ascribes to it efficacious and performative powers It allows money to do things. In both cases, we see examples of what the literary theorist J.L. Austin calls performative signs, performative speech acts, as he calls them. That is to say, pieces of representation which actually do achieve things, such as, for example, when the priest says, I now declare you man and wife. Those words actually do something. What they mean is not important. What they do is important. And money and the fetishes and icons that are used in magic are signs of a similar nature. They're signs which are not supposed to have reference. They're not supposed to mean things. They're signs which are efficacious, which actually perform acts in the real world. But enlightenment came along and enlightenment and its uh, legions of followers weren't they determined to replace magical views of the world with rational perspectives rational understandings they were very much so yes in fact in goethe's faust there's a wonderfully comic scene where various philosophers uh, inform Mephistopheles that he no longer exists and dismiss him and tell him to go away. There's no place for him here in this new enlightened world. Um, Yes, I think enlightenment certainly sees itself as sweeping away superstition and replacing it all with rationality. I think, however, we might see this process in a slightly different way. It may be that what seems to be the disappearance of magic from the world, at least from the Western world, we don't kind of experience magic in our everyday lives anymore. At least we don't think we do. 
but it may be that that disappearance is actually the result of the complete triumph of magic. It may be that there is nothing but magic in the world anymore. And the reason why we don't see it is because we have no vantage point outside it from which we might view it. What I mean, basically, is what we call the economy, which is uh, a recent and arbitrary invention. The notion of the economy was brought into being in the 18th century as a way of rationalizing the kind of self-interested, avaricious, greedy behavior that takes place and is allowed to take place in a market economy. The sphere of the economy is an invented sphere? Yeah. The idea that certain actions and certain modes of behavior are, so to speak, economic and others are not. This is an idea that was developed by the early political economists in the late 17th and 18th century in order to make it permissible to behave in greedy, avaricious, self-interested ways, which until then had been forbidden by ethical and moral systems. The notion of the economy says, okay, there's this area, there's this kind of action which is called economic, and in that area, it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to pursue your rational self-interest. In fact, the economy, we might say, consists of those behaviors in which human beings pursue their rational self-interest in a legitimate form. And I, I want to read something you were talking about earlier. I want to read from something you wrote about the Western world and magic. You wrote, The Western world, too, is ruled by icons, charms, and fetishes. Its inhabitants are frequently confused as to the boundaries between fantasy and reality. Their leisure time is spent in the contemplation of images. They speak easily of the, quote, cult of celebrity. They dedicate their economic lives to the accumulation of the token they call money. They often understand their identities in relation to the goods they consume. Now, a distinction that I believe goes back to Aristotle is the distinction between a thing's use value and its exchange value. Can you define both terms for us? Sure. A use value is what something actually does. Let's think again about the example of a watch. The use value of a watch is to tell the time. In a similar fashion, the use value of a pen is to write with. So the use value of an object is inherent in the material body of the object itself. If you don't have the material watch, you can't tell the time. If you don't have the material pen, you can't write. Exchange value is symbolic. Say I want to exchange the watch for the pen. Say I want to do barter and swap the watch for the pen. In order to do that, I must be able to perceive the value of the watch in the physical body of the pen. That pen must be worth a watch to me. Right? I must be able to see or perceive or understand that the value of the watch is present in the physical body of the pen. Mm -hmm. That value is what we call exchange value. It's not material. It's imaginary. It's symbolic. But nevertheless, it's real. Now, this exchange value is on a large scale when the economy develops beyond the system of simple barter. This exchange value develops into the common denominator known as money. So this is how money originates as a symbol. When we extend that beyond a simple barter, exchange value takes on a life of its own, culminating in postmodernism, where money, uh, the medium of the exchange, completely dominates the entire economic system. And what's the consequence, say, in Aristotle's view of exchange value kind of running rampant, triumphing over use value to the extent that money is now seen as a way of making money without necessarily there being any material products or manufactured products as an intermediary. Aristotle thinks that's terrible. He thinks it's unethical and immoral and above all unnatural. Aristotle says that usury 
is the most hated form of economy and he says it's most reasonably hated because it's the furthest away from nature. It takes something which is not part of nature, money, and it makes it reproduce as if it were part of nature. For Aristotle, this is a fundamental error and from that error all sorts of other philosophical and ethical errors flow. For Aristotle, the purpose of economic activity is to produce things, use values, right? Things that are going to be useful for humanity. The purpose of economic activity is not to produce money. Money is a means, for Aristotle, to the end of producing use values. When money becomes the end, the purpose of an economic act, such as exchange, for Aristotle, that is bad and unethical. So when, for example, you use your money to buy uh, a factory and you wait for the factory's value to increase and then you sell the factory at a profit. For Aristotle, you've done something wrong because you have subordinated the material entity of the factory and the use values that can be produced in the factory. You've subordinated them to the end of financial profit, which finally is nothing at all, right? Financial profit is a set of figures that go into your bank account, but which do not produce anything material, don't produce anything useful. So for Aristotle, for money to be the end of economic activity was wrong, and above all, usury was wrong. By the way, Aristotle is not alone in this. All systems of philosophy, all the great religions in world history, basically every system of thought in human history condemns usury. I think that's something that we would do well to think about because our society is completely based upon usury. Usury runs our economy. I think it ought to give us pause that every previous system of thought in human history has said that usury is basically the work of the devil. David Hawkes, speaking with me in March 2012. David's most recent books are The Reign of Anti-Logos and Money and Magic in Early Modern Drama. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. We turn now to Laura Kipnis, a cultural critic, Northwestern University professor, and author of the book Against Love, a Polemic. During our conversation in 2004 about the downsides of long-term monogamous relationships, Kipnis described the restrictions on personal autonomy that people and couples endure. Well, I did go around asking people, this is when I played sociologist or journalist or something, I did actually go around asking people, what can't you do in a couple? Because, it, you know, if you have spent any time in a couple or in the vicinity of couples, you realize that an awful lot of what constitutes conversation is a set of rules and interdictions about don't do this, don't do that. And some of them are unspoken, like you can't leave the house without saying where you're going. And others are explicit, like you can't talk to your, you know, ex-boyfriend or, or something like that. Or you're you not can't, gonna, Yeah, you're not going to wear that shirt to the party, yeah, are you? You yeah. can't wear this, you can't smoke, you can't, you know, drink on during the day. You know, I mean, endless kind of patrolling of each other's bodies and autonomy and mobility. So... One of the things I was trying to do in this book, or in fact, a lot of the impetus of it, was to talk about love and coupledom on a broader scale, in a wider context than just the individual. And the question becomes, what are the social consequences of these private arrangements that we're kind of impelled into and and adhere to, partly because there's a lot of shame and onus on us when we try to get out of them? And I was interested in all of this, policing. Um, you know, there's a Michel Foucault, the political philosopher and historian, talks a lot about one of the things that constitutes modernity is these new kinds of enclosures. He writes about the history of prisons and asylums and barracks, places where people can get watched and surveilled and their movements are curtailed. And that's how power gets exercised in modernity as opposed to previous regimes where it was torture and people were, you know, drawn and quartered and that kind of thing. So power operates in these more subtle ways. And I thought, well, domestic life is the epitome of that kind of 
surveillance of bodily movement and the minutia of gesture and expression and mobility. So I guess one of the larger questions that interests me politically is, and, you know, we see this even in the last election. How do you persuade an entire population to vote against its own economic interests? You know, how do you induce a population to, to stay in, to, to, to remain complacent, to, to, you know, there's a, a level of passivity, it seems to me, and complacency in the American population. And I suppose what I was trying to do in this book is connect some of this larger sense of political stasis and lack of a sense of other possibilities of, of utopian thinking, a decline in people's sense of, you know, what's possible out of life. And so where does that, how does that get produced? So it's not just a question of, you know, should I leave my marriage um, or am I happy? Although happiness, I think, is more of a political question than it's usually thought to be. But it's how, what are the larger consequences of people being in these immobilized and ever more scrutinized and policed forms of daily life. Is it, Laura, as stark as saying that marital coupledom as a social ideal is being uh, foisted upon us as a form of kind of this subtle social control, and the intent is that, and the intent, then the additional intent is because we sort of get emotionally stagnated, or some of us do in long-term couples, that then as citizens we will act in more compliant ways? I mean, is it is it that clear to you? I don't think it's that much of a billiard ball kind of determinism. You know, there's not somebody up there pulling the strings. But, you know, how does socialization work and how is social normalcy produced and what are the effects? I mean, in a larger sense, every society, I think, produces personality structures and character types that will reproduce that existing society you know so how how is the status quo reproduced i mean we don't have policemen on every corner you know trying to stop social revolution from happening you know it happens at much different levels so it's that kind of more subtle level that i'm trying to get at how how do people's sense of social possibility get closed down and and i think what i would venture to say is that this whole notion that you, the private life isn't a place that you deserve happiness or that when you're unhappy, you know, kind of grit your teeth and bear it because that's what maturity entails and changing your life is always, not always, but often unethical because it involves hurting other people. All, you know, all those kind of strictures that come down to us uh, at the personal level have analogs at the larger level and the ways in which political risks don't get taken or new political thoughts don't get thought. Mm. You write that, quote, domestic coupledom is the boot camp for compliant citizenship, a training ground for gluey resignation and immobility. And then later, how very convenient that we're, quote, so willing to police ourselves and those uh, we love. You've been, I think, beginning to allude to this, Laura, but, but exactly what would be threatened if people were given more freedom to pursue their desires, to move in and out of relationships, to acknowledge and act upon the fact that, you know, they're attracted to some other person, perhaps, than the one they're with? That is the interesting question. And, you know, there are different ways you can think about it. I mean, one is just how many um, aspects of social and economic life kind of hinge on marriage and, and coupledom, you know, all the, and, you know, this comes out in the fight for gay marriage, which I have a lot of ambivalence about, but, you know, how many economic resources are parceled out via marriage? So there's just an awful lot of the social and economic structure that's premised on long-term marriages from child-rearing practices, you know, so then, so which means that then child-raising becomes a reason not to change the couple's form because, you know, it's this kind of circular argument. You can't change coupledom because child-rearing depends on it and child-rearing depends on it because, you know, so, so there's that whole level of just the social structure is structured around the presumption that marriage is going to be a social and personal norm. But I guess, you know, the sense that all political possibilities are foreclosed these days, that there aren't 
social and political alternatives or economic alternatives that we're stuck with what we have and the you know, that does seem to be analogous to the foreclosure of a sense of experimentation or possibility in personal life. You know, the idea that there only is this one form in which personal life can get um, played out and that all other forms kind of, you know, deviate from that central norm, which is long-term domestic coupledom, even though what I think is happening currently is that the, I think the institution of marriage is certainly undergoing a lot of overhaul and transition, and not only because of individual desires or people's bad ethics or lack of commitment or whatever, but because, you know, I think capitalism itself increasingly tears apart the social fabric and is kind of rapacious, just the decline of the family wage, for example. So there are these large-scale social and economic changes going on. Laura Kipnis, cultural critic and professor emeritus in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at Northwestern University. She spoke with me on December 8, 2004. Laura's books include Against Love, a polemic, and most recently, Love in the Time of Contagion. I'm C.S. Today we are marking the 20th anniversary of Against the Grain. We turn now to Theodore Brown who provided the clearest encapsulation of the history of socialist organizing that I've heard, perhaps, ever. Ted Brown is Professor Emeritus of History and of Medical Humanities at the University of Rochester, and he's co-editor with Anne Emanuel Byrne of the volume Comrades in Health, U.S. Health Internationalists, Abroad and at Home. When Ted joined me in August 2015, I asked what he meant by the term proletarian internationalism. Proletarian internationalism, which is a term I think I may have coined, or it's uh, my own variant on terms like it, but I don't think it has been used in quite this way. Proletarian internationalism as a political movement really emerged at the same time. It's part of the same milieu of the Industrial Revolution and of the social and political ferment, especially in the 1840s. You can trace it back probably to the French Revolution, and then in the early 19th century to the dreams of the French Revolution as networks and cadres of internationalists began to focus in certain cities, looking back to the French Revolution as a dream that they could realize in the new age of the 1820s or 1830s. But it was the 1840s, a decade of revolution, that really brought proletarian internationalism into prominence. And the most important document of that, the clarion call that gave it the most ringing phrases, was, of course, the Communist Manifesto. There are many places in the Communist Manifesto, which was written jointly in early 1848 by Engels and Marx. It was In the Communist Manifesto, we really have an articulation of proletarian internationalism in many places, but the way it closes probably sums it up most neatly. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains and a world to gain. It's workers of the world across national boundaries. And this is when the revolutionary movement is in very, very striking contrast and is antagonistic to a growing nationalism that will separate peoples into separate national entities and rally them around a chauvinism. What internationalists wanted was an identity of working men across those artificial national boundaries and an identification with the struggles and the challenges of workers wherever you found them. So there's, in proletarian nationalism, a worldwide movement that became known as Marxism and socialism and eventually Bolshevism, there was an identity with those who were most in need of support by their comrades. And it did not matter whether they were German peasants or French workers, it was an alliance across those boundaries, workers of the world uniting to achieve a better world that would be more fair, more equitable, more just. That's what proletarian internationalism is about. Many of the popular uprisings around Europe that occurred in 1848 were quashed, were suppressed. What impact did that have on the momentum for proletarian revolution? And tell us about the founding of the International Working Men's Association in London in 1864. 
Right. The first reaction to the revolutions of the 1840s, especially a variety of revolutions in 1848, was massive repression. Radicals had to scatter. Some had to flee. Some were imprisoned for many years. Others just stayed undercover and found relatively safe haven in certain cities. London was one of those cities. And so it's not surprising when the Workmen's Association began to form, London would be one of the safest places to have such meetings. It took about a decade, that is to the late 1850s, when Marx, who was living in London at the time, Engels, who was living in Manchester but often commuted to, to London and spent time with Marx and others who were gathering there, came together and understood that there was an emerging trade union movement, there was the beginning of unions and unionization, and the possibility as a decade passed and some of the repressive measures were beginning to be lifted, that there was an opportunity to work together and to create across national boundaries an international organization. They named it the first international with these goals of really creating the energy and momentum for a new radical movement. How many workers from how many countries belong to or affiliated with the First International? I don't have a precise number, but there were several hundreds who would come to meetings and would be part of this organization. There were even a few in the United States who were part of this organization former abolitionists joined this movement. They could see it as the next major step in international development and in their campaigns for social justice. So it drew quite a few people in many countries. Yeah, in fact, you write in your piece that the first international at its peak claimed the allegiance of several hundred thousand workers from many countries. Yes, uh, they would, of course, not all of them would come to meetings. Meetings were much smaller, but this would be the membership of organizations that those meeting in London would represent. So within the First International, Marx famously clashed with the anarchists. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this conflict and its outcome. The basic clash was that Marx at that point saw the need to build a movement, and that required some discipline. He would be very uh, upset and distracted by those who resisted all forms of discipline and hierarchy, including within the left. And there was also some worry about Marx, who had very clearly articulated a revolutionary ideology, who by the 1860s saw some possibility, given the numbers that we've just referred to, of actually creating uh, legislation that would improve the lot of workers. And this created one of the major tensions in the socialist movements and the radical movements on the left. If you can accomplish immediate gains that will advantage and improve the lot of individuals, do you work for that? And do you move through the normal channels of governmental change to do that? Or do you hold out for a revolutionary transformation? And in this instance, oddly, Marx was on the more conservative side, at least as he was perceived by the anarchists who constantly urged transformative revolution and certainly resisted any kind of hierarchic discipline which Marx wanted to impose. He thought this was an unruly lot and there needed to be organization and planning for the next activities. And we really can't talk about proletarian internationalism, working class internationalism, without talking about the Paris Commune from which a number of revolutionaries and reformers drew inspiration. So the Paris Commune was a revolutionary working class body. It ruled Paris for two months in early 1871. What was so appealing to radicals um, about the Paris Commune? It appeared to be the revolution made real. There it was in life and in a a worker commune that controlled the affairs for that brief period of time. Uh, This was the aspiration come real, and it went back to the most radical phases of the French Revolution and the revolutionary dreams in the interim. But it was very threatened. It was very precarious. And there were debates within radical circles, within the first international, about how to support it most effectively with characteristically the anarchists on the one side and Marx and his followers on the other, taking very different 
routes to uh, support, whether they be more organized or be spontaneous actions and spontaneous support, all the while that many in the radical movements felt the clock ticking away. It was just going to be a matter of time before the authorities cracked down. They couldn't sustain this. So at the same time, there was this wonderful sort of infusion of hope and a dream of this being the beginning of a new future and an ominous sense that there's going to be a massive and brutal crackdown, which is in fact what turned out. Lenin, for example, later was a student of the Paris Commune. It became the touchstone of many who became radicals. Lenin was instrumental, of course, in the activities and formation of the Third International, or the Common Turn. How much was the Third International about Lenin wanting to safeguard the Bolshevik Revolution from the forces of counter-revolution, and how much was it about propagating proletarian revolution globally? I, I think it was about both, and I don't know how to decide which was more important. Both were very important considerations, and they supported one another. Lenin was very aware of the dangerous mobilization of the parties that would be threatened most by revolution and the possible spread of revolution from Russia. He knew that counter-revolutionary movements were being mobilized. He knew that those who fled from Russia of the old Tsarist regime would try to mobilize support in the West and, in fact, stage a counter-revolution. He saw that coming. He knew that Western nations, the traditional countries, would be very terrified of the spread of the Russian Revolution of this radical seed. So he was awaiting that and at the same time knew that the best defense would be to create alliances in other countries and to hope that in other countries, as in Germany, as in other parts of Europe, there would be revolutionary uprisings that would keep the Western powers distracted, that may spread revolution from Russia and protect the Russian Revolution. At the same time, I think he had a genuinely idealistic commitment to spreading world revolution. He understood that revolution was not only about European countries or countries like Russia, which were significantly European, even if they had a very important Oriental or Eastern dimension. And he very clearly identified with what we would call the third world peoples around the world in Africa and in Latin America and in China where he saw the need for spread of this revolutionary spirit, both for defensive purposes, the more there is support around the world for our revolutionary goals, the safer will be the Russian Revolution, that will protect it most, but it is also important to spread that vision and to spread that seed. By the late 19-teens, when the Third International gets going in 1919, he saw that revolutions which had been attempted in Germany and in Hungary and other places by Bolshevik sympathizers or by Bolsheviks in those countries were beginning to fail and brutal repression was beginning. So he couldn't look to allies in Europe so much. He needed to look to allies in the third world, in China, Africa, and so on. Especially China emerged very quickly as one of the major hopes for the future. India, perhaps, but it didn't proceed as effectively there. Theodore Brown is Professor Emeritus at the University of Rochester. The program is Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song. Another standout guest was Juliet Hooker, a political theorist based, when we spoke in 2016, at the University of Texas at Austin. She now teaches at Brown University. Juliet Hooker's books include Race and the Politics of Solidarity and Theorizing Race in the Americas. Juliet joined me to talk about a paper entitled Black Lives Matter and the Paradoxes of U.S. Black Politics from Democratic Sacrifice to Democratic Repair. Here is a portion of that interview. I'd like to ask you about what the political theorist Danielle Allen has written about the role of loss in democratic politics. So one of the very insightful um, ideas that Allen explores is this notion that democracies are, or the experience of democracy, of being a citizen in a democracy, is defined by loss. And this is because citizens have different policy preferences. And inevitably, in a democracy where the majority, right, 
wins in any kind of policy debates. That means that they're winners and losers. That means that there's some people whose preferences get enacted and others who don't. And so while we think that democracy is about right participation and getting your um, your agenda enacted, it's also about having the opposite happen, right? About not seeing that happen. So that she argues that right, this experience of loss, of having to cope with losing an argument, is something that all citizens experience and that therefore democracies have to find ways to cope with the experience of loss. Cope with the experience of loss. And what happens in Alan's mind when some parts of a society lose more, they lose systematically, they, there is a disproportionate balance between winners and losers? So one of the things that she points to, she points to the 1960s, and she argues that up until that point in the United States, what you had was that losses weren't equally distributed, right? That one group, you know, essentially got the task of winning and another got the task of being good losers. And the good losers were African-Americans who weren't allowed to participate in politics, who were barred from equal employment opportunities, et cetera, who were operating under um, Jim Crow racial segregation. So one of the things that is key then to this idea of loss is that in a democracy, it's supposed to be arbitrarily distributed, right? There shouldn't be one systematic group that is always the one that loses a debate, um, that loses in terms of a policy decision. Because the experience then of having to sacrifice, right, to have to peacefully accept that you lost is one that all groups need to experience in order for it to be legitimate. Otherwise, what you have is an uneven democracy where certain groups are always expected to be to be the ones who peacefully accept their losses and who sacrifice by peacefully accepting rather than revolting. And I think one of the, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the paper is that I don't think that this stopped happening in the 1960s. I think we continue to have a pattern by which Blacks or African-Americans are democratic losers are the ones who are expected to cope with um, and to make sacrifices on behalf of U.S. democracy. We then talked about the civil rights protests of the 1960s, how the protesters are thought of today, and what misconceptions still circulate about the impact the protesters had on white observers. This narrative, right, about these sort of middle-class, respectable, well-behaved, nonviolent, um, heroic black protesters who put themselves and their bodies on the line in order to achieve greater racial justice, then one of the things that it does is suggest that the way that there is one legitimate form that black politics should take, right? And it's that form. And it's this form in which blacks peacefully acquiesce to their losses. And when they protest, right, when they try to bring about change in racist structures, that they need to do so in a nonviolent way that is acceptable, that adheres to the norms of civility, that doesn't sort of offend white sensibilities, that they're not allowed to express, for example, rage, which is in some ways a very normal response to violence and to terror and to injustice, right? Um, There's something absolutely normal and healthy about being angry at injustice. Um, But that sort of range of human emotion is precluded by this, this mythical idea that what Black citizens should do is be these kind of superhuman figures who acquiesce peacefully, who put their bad bodies on the line, who enact this form of political heroism, and who in so doing are sacrificing themselves on behalf of the common good, right? Because what they're achieving is this um, greater good of more racially egalitarian 
society. But I think one of the things that I think is important to think about is whether, in fact, that shifts attention away from the kind of disparities and injustices that prompt Black protests in the first place and on to this question of, well, how do we preserve peaceful, stable democracy rather than how do we address the injustices that cause people to protest in the first place? Well, if, as you seem to be suggesting, African Americans are expected to be, in a sense, good losers by practicing the politics of respectability and nonviolence and to some degree acquiescence, although you know, as as you've said, nonviolent protest is does not equal acquiescence, then it is instructive to look at whether whites in U.S. society have been good losers, have been the kind of losers that they expect, in your opinion, blacks to be. And you go back to the 1960s when, you know, at least some of the privileges, the racial privileges of whites were undermined or eliminated, you go back and look at whether whites could or should be considered good losers at that time. What do you conclude? So I conclude that they ha- they were not good losers. They have not been good losers. And the basis for this actually is a very um, discernible pattern in U.S. politics where moments of you know, victories for greater racial equality have been followed by these periods of backlash and retrenchment where rights that have been gained have slowly been eroded. If you, right, we see this with the Civil War, right, which leads to the end of slavery and is followed by Reconstruction and the attempt to enfranchise African-American men, which is then followed by the post-Reconstruction period of disenfranchisement, the, you know, establishing of racial segregation and Jim Crow and of, you know, sort of white supremacy as as a, you know, official ideology of the country. And if you look at the 1960s, I think what we see is a, um, a similar pattern, right? The victories of the civil rights movement, which were, you know, of course, quite important and made enormous changes to U.S. society um, were followed by, I think, a period where they were slowly, some of those gains have slowly been eroded. If you look at today, the dismantling of things like the Voting Rights Act or the placing barriers to minority voter registration, um, things of that sort, I think we see that some of the policies that were put in place in the 60s are being dismantled and were followed by this period, I think, of racial resentment. Well, when African-American protests, uh, recent ones, have moved in a kind of non-respectable, uncivil direction, they are often characterized as as riots. And I think sympathizers of of these African-American protesters would maybe call them uprisings. So, you know, on a concrete level, what is your sense of whether riots or uprisings or whatever you want to call them, whether they can be productive and whether they ought to be pursued if, you know, considered appropriate by the people at these events. What I want to suggest is that we need to stop and think about, you know, what is it legitimate to ask people whose lives have been defined by mass incarceration, by state policy that has confined them in many cases by design to urban ghettos that don't have the same kind of state services um, or educational opportunities, um, that um, are defined by uh, sometimes predatory local governments that use fines and traffic tickets and other means to fund themselves via, you know, sort of these forms of taxation of of those who are already poor. What is it legitimate for us as a democracy to ask um, those citizens 
to sacrifice, right, who are already sacrificing, is it legitimate to ask them then to express their anger at injustice in these ways that we see as more productive or more, you know, more civil? So I think I would switch that question around to say, you know, what can we ask of them when they are already sacrificing? And I think what I want to suggest is that when we look at these moments when violent confrontations have erupted that, you know, that have been described as riots, one of the things that I suggest in the paper is that maybe we should consider whether that these, um, you know, riots are a form of democratic repair. And what I mean by that is that they're not constructive in the sense of they are not necessarily going to solve the sort of structural problems that lead to, you know, mass incarceration or, you know, police violence in the first place, but that they are maybe productive in the sense that they allow Blacks and the the communities that are being affected by these problems to express their anger at these injustices, to make them visible in a way that they're otherwise not allowed because this is beyond the norms of, of, you know, sort of um, acceptable democratic politics. Juliet Hooker, professor of political science at Brown University, conversing with me in January 2016. Juliet's book, Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss, is due out later this year from Princeton University Press. Our retrospective marking 20 years of Against the Grain, the program turned 20 on March 3rd, continues with excerpts of a conversation I had with the acclaimed writer Louise Erdrich, whose novel The Painted Drum had just come out when she joined me in studio in October 2005. I noted that the main protagonist of the novel seemed inclined to a kind of fatalism. I personally believe more that we have some chance to affect our fate, but we just don't know where we're pulling this where the strings we pull are going to lead us. I just do the best I can with what I have every day, and that's all I can do. But of course, I think that's the thing that we've wondered about ever since we started wondering. How do we influence chance? How much is just blind luck? What piece of chaos can we get our handle on? And that's what literature, I think, is always about, and that's what storytelling is. Storytelling is really an attempt to grab a piece of chaos and make it comprehensible. Mm. And if we can't do that, to at least elaborate on the chaos itself, to try to illuminate some small corner of all that we don't know. Mm. Well, speaking of all that we don't know, uh, another one of your characters talks about his longing kind of his need to pierce through his existence. He says, I am a boundary to something else, but I don't know what. Uh, Do you reflect a lot on these questions, this idea of what our existence means and what transcends our existence and whether we could actually access that? Really, I think it's what I write about all the time, even though there are other characters doing things and getting lost and getting into absurd situations. What he says is when he hears the wolves, his heart fills with the kind of tumult that he experienced in his younger days. And he wants to go out and is desperate to hear what he could never know and see what is always going to be invisible to him. I think that's very much in our human, that's our part of our humanity, is the big question has been put into us. And we have to go on without ever knowing the answers to the big question that mm. we have. And I think my rather wistful belief is that I'll someday maybe pass on after death and go up to this <laughs> this being and say, what were you thinking? <laughs> what was that all about? Mm-hmm. What's the answer? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're born with. So what would, what might be the point of searching for something that might remain hidden from us our entire lives? 
I, I think that's the thing. There isn't a point to doing it. We're driven to it by an ineluctable process. We, well, many of us would prefer not to think about it. A lot of people don't. Thank God, you know, we mm-hmm. have all sorts of distractions so that we don't have to think about this all the time. Because when we do, we're faced with an abyss, an abyss of unknowing. We we don't know why we are here. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what infinity is. We don't know. And, you know, we can try all we want to, you know, read all the answers in, in any um, area of knowledge that we like, but we'll find the same answers in religion. We'll find the same answers in physics and science and in literature. And that is that we're just here to, we're here to address the mystery. We won't have the answers. And if someone tells you what the answers are, for instance, I mentioned religion, and of course you'll get answers if you go to certain people. And you'll get very strict answers and people who believe very firmly in what they're saying, they're lying. They don't know the answers. There is no answer that a religious person can give beyond you're in the search. You know, you're in the search, pal. That's Mm -hmm. where you are. Louise Erdrich, a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, talking with me in studio on October 5th, 2005. Her most recent novel is The Sentence. And that concludes my effort to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Against the Grain. Sasha will follow up with her thoughts and recollections. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.